right, James chapter 2, James chapter 2, we'll pick it up in verse 14. Uh, and let me say this by way of introduction, uh, this passage is a real doozy. Uh, in fact, if you know anything about church history, you will know that this passage and passages like it, the interpretation thereof, are somewhat of the source of the rift that existed and still exists and will exist between the Protestant and Catholic Church, because we are talking about the relationship uh, between faith and works. And if you are familiar with what Paul has to say on this, there's uh, one particular moment in this passage that you're probably going to sweat a little bit because it looks like James is saying the exact opposite of what Paul said. So this will be uh, a message that requires a great deal of explanation, more so than application today, but I can assure you the Lord is going to help us, and we will be changed by this time we spend together. So that being said, let me also say this by way of structural organization. I think this passage breaks out in three uh, smaller chunks. The first one, verses 14 to 17, might describe what you could call dead faith. Then verses 18 to 20 describe what you might call demon-like faith, and we'll unpack that for sure. And then finally, verses 21 to 26, we will see what we might call dynamic or living faith. So let's go ahead and dive right in here in verse 14. It says this, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Now what James is doing here in the Greek, and it's also apparent here in the English as well, is he is asking two rhetorical questions that presuppose a negative response. So he's asking two questions that he's presuming that people are going to answer, or at least the way he's constructing it, he's hoping that they will answer no to both of those questions. And what, what I think would help us here, there's another way this could be uh, translated, uh, to emphasize that certain word, that, in that second question. Can that faith save him? And what he's doing is he's basically saying, uh, hypothetically here, Someone has constructed this kind of bogus Christianity that says that you can have faith and not have works, and under that economy, can that kind of faith save a person? And the answer, of course, is no. And so therein, I think, lies what really is going to be the, the, the singular point that I have today. It's the big idea from this passage, and that is that faith that does not lead to works is not saving faith. Faith that does not lead to works is not saving faith. Maybe another way to say it could be this. Faith that does not work doesn't work. Let's keep looking. Verse 15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So here's another scenario that James is constructing, and he basically moves this one into the church family. And he said, let's say, hypothetically, or it's at least possible that maybe he's been made aware of situations like this, that two Christians, or a singular Christian, a brother or sister, comes to you, they are completely destitute, they don't even have enough money for food for that day, and your response is that you give them some kind of Christianese, glad-handing, 
smile, you don't help them with your resources, and you send them on the way. Well, that doesn't work. That's not the way it's supposed to be. So that, again, is another illustration of what James is saying about this faith that doesn't work. It doesn't work. And what he calls it here is dead. So true saving faith always leads to some kind of outworking. Now, <clears throat> verse 18 through 20, we get into the next type of faith here, and this is what we might call demon-like faith. It says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. And so what he's presupposing here, yet another scenario, except this one is a collab. It is a Batman and Robin team up. This is a hypothetical person who splits themselves apart and says, or they say to their friend, hey, I got the faith, you got the works, let's team up and let's see if we can make this thing work. But again, what does James say? He says no, and he just says it in this way, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Now the next statement here drives this point home even further. He said, you believe that God is one, you do well. So this is a reference to the Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is the classic monotheistic statement affirming uh, that God is one, that there is one God, and that he says after that, even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Now, there's a couple of interesting Greek words here. First, uh, that word shudder actually could be used to describe the bristling up like a frightened cat. Now, some of you who are cat people, God bless you, we'll pray for you. You know what it looks like when your cat gets afraid. If you've ever seen those YouTube videos that you put a cucumber down behind a cat and they just totally lose their minds. I still don't understand what's happening there, but I love those. And what he's saying here is, is that demons understand the truth of Christianity, and it terrifies them. And if anybody understands that God is one, <coughs> it would be the demon community. But he's saying clearly those people are not going to be, uh, those demons are not going to be saved. And so just simply believing that there is a God, for example, that Jesus did rise from the dead, so on and so forth, just that kind of belief is not the same as true faith. And I think in our day and age, this has particular relevance because I can't tell you how many people <coughs> over the years that I have interacted with uh, that we'll get to talking on an airplane or something like that, and we'll get to having a conversation. What do you do? What do I do? Oh, you're a pastor. That's great. So on and so forth. And what they will then retort when I start to ask them about the gospel and what they believe, they'll come back with something that is, oh, well, my granddad was a pastor, or I knew a pastor, or he lives across the street. He was a good guy. But what becomes apparent is they have demon-like faith. They may know some christian -y stuff. They may even affirm truths from the Bible. But if they have belief that does not lead to life change, does not believe to lead to affirming historic Christianity and so on and so forth, that does not equal salvation. And I like what the Preach the Word commentary has to say about this. They say this. They say, real faith is more than mental assent to truth. 
It is a belief that involves the heart. And then they quote from Romans chapter 10. It says, because if you confess with your mouth that the Lord Jesus, that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And I love this illustration they gave. It is one thing to say, I believe an airplane will hold me, but it is quite another, another thing to climb into it and fly somewhere. It's one thing to believe that an airplane will hold us, but it's a totally different thing to board that airplane and be transported. This is also very similar to what Paul was getting at uh, in Acts chapter 16, verse 30. The Philippian jailer comes to him and says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul's response is, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And that preposition that he uses there, believe in the Lord Jesus, is of paramount importance for what James is talking about here. To use the illustration that we just were given, it's not simply to, enough to believe that there is a Jesus airplane out there that can help you. You have to climb in the Jesus airplane. You have to put your faith and trust in Jesus himself. And it's, it's very interesting. Even that word itself means to rest everything upon him, to throw yourself on Jesus himself. And so the type of faith that James is expounding here, the type of faith that Paul is calling people to here, it is 100% all in trust and complete assurance in Jesus Christ and his finished work for us. And then that faith gives way to good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do. So we've talked about dead faith, why it doesn't work. We've talked about demon-like faith, why it doesn't work. Now let's talk about dynamic faith. And he's going to give us three examples here that I think will help us. Look at this. It says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Now, of course, Abraham, this is Father Abraham from children's ministry greatness. Father Abraham, who had many sons, right arm, left arm. But he is one of the, the greatest looming figures of the Old Testament. Uh, he, he was known as a father of the faith. James's uh, community would have immediately understood this. And so that's why he uses this example. But this phrase that he uses here, justified by works, this is the one that might cause us to sweat a little bit if we're familiar with what Paul has to say. But let me give us some help uh, from a couple of different fronts that I think really will shed light on this topic. The first one, and this is not just true for this passage, this is true for all good Bible interpretation. Different writers can use the same word different ways. Different writers can use the same word different ways. And so when James uses the word justify, uh, he's using it a little bit differently than how Paul used it. When Paul was talking about it, he was talking about it to be declared judicially righteous. Um, but what James is talking about here is in the sense that it, 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 the works don't make your faith true. They show that your faith is true. And what I mean by that is when you look at Abraham's illustration here, when he talks about offering Isaac on the altar, that 
confirming activity, if you want to think about that. Probably a better way to say it would be that revealing activity. Uh, that happens in Genesis chapter 22. And that is many years after Abraham's conversion, which is in Genesis chapter 12. So what he's doing is he's demonstrating his faith. He's not earning his faith. And the other thing to think about this, uh, you can see this in, in the, the, the rest that he says here. You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And again, when he talks about completed here, he's talking about it was brought to its end, its fullness, its maturity. It's, it's not some kind of he's having to work for his salvation. And then he goes further to say, and Scripture was fulfilled that said Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So he was called a friend of God. And you see that person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So again, the idea here is to show faith and not earn faith. And again, I think the preach the word commentary is a particular help to us on this topic. I really like what they had to say here. They said, there is no real contradiction between James and Paul regarding faith. For Paul's teaching about faith and works focuses on the time before conversion, and James's focus is after conversion. As Douglas Moo has pointed out, Paul denies any efficacy to pre-conversion works. But, Paul is, but James is pleading for the absolute necessity of post-conversion works. Paul was fighting against a tradition that promoted a false works salvation, and James was fighting against a light faith that minimized the necessity of works after coming to Christ. Paul says works cannot bring us to Christ. James says that after we come to Christ, works are imperative. And so what's really important for us to understand here also as an interpretive help, first part, words can be used, same word can be used in different ways. Second part, the context into which that writer was writing and speaking really matters. It really matters. And we talk about this uh, on a regular basis, but let me just emphasize it again here. Paul was speaking to particular issues, making sure that people understand how people become Christians, and he was writing into that context. And then what James is emphasizing here is that once you become a Christian, that faith has to work, and it will work because of what God has done and does uh, through the Holy Spirit, the preaching of word, the other means of grace, so on and so forth. And what I really like is kind of the final word on this topic actually comes from John Calvin. I think he just really draws together what we're talking about here. He says, It is true that we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. It is true that we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. And that's what I think James is getting at. He is speaking to them and to us and saying, listen, this is how you meet Jesus, but once you meet Jesus, here's what's going to happen. It's going to have a natural outworking in your life. And then where he ends this passage, I think, is actually quite fascinating as well. Two more examples. 
Uh, the next one, he says, And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. So this is a second Old Testament example. This one comes from Joshua chapter 2 and Joshua chapter 6. And what's fascinating about this is uh, Rahab and Abraham could not be more different. Uh, it, it is possible that James is even specifically chosen two opposite ends of the spectrum for this contrast to say, listen, Abraham, saved by God, Rahab, saved by God, anybody in between, far out past, you can be saved by God. And once you are, look what happens. And so he uses this example, again, one that they would have known, to show that her actions bore out her true faith in the God of the Bible. And then the final illustration that he uses here, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So, so James, being the good teacher that he was, he says his main point again, he reiterates it, and he uses a concrete analogy to drive it home. So, plenty more that could be said about that passage, but I feel like that's enough to help us understand it and now I want to talk to about putting some feet on it uh, in the time that we have left. So a few pieces of application of what we can do with a truth like this. I think, first of all, we need to examine our doctrine and make sure that we understand it. That we need to examine our doctrine and make sure that we understand it. Now, again, are we going to understand every particular nuance of it in this morning? Probably not. People have been working on this for quite some time. But beyond that, we do need to have the basic understanding that we are saved by grace through faith. To use the previous analogy, we can't just believe in the Jesus airplane. We have to board the Jesus airplane. It's not enough to have mental knowledge of the facts of the gospel. We have to put our faith and trust in them and transfer the leadership of our lives over to Jesus. And that is where that doctrine begins. Secondarily, we got to understand that works are not optional for the Christian. And I think that's probably what James would have been engaging with there because, I mean, it is possible that all those could have been hypothetical illustrations, but they have such a specificity to them. My personal belief is that they probably weren't. There probably were some ideas out there of people trying to pervert this doctrine because it certainly happened since then. And so he is writing in this corrective way to help people understand Christianity is not simply a get-out-of-hell-free card, but it leads to a certain kind of life. And so that is the corrective that he offers. Now, at the same time, we got to make sure that we understand that, because if you walk away from this teaching and you say, okay, God saved me, but now it's my responsibility to keep myself saved— well, that's clearly not what the Bible is saying, that God calls and God keeps everyone who belongs to him. God uses passages like this to help keep us on the path. He uses passages like the warning passage in the book, or warning passages in the book of Hebrews to keep us on the path, and it is the work of the Spirit of God to enliven our hearts, to obey the Word of God, and he will form Christ within us. We got to stay on that path and we got to keep that understanding. But we need to let James speak 
in the authority that he speaks and the tone and the way he says it to make sure that we have a correct understanding of it. So we got to understand the doctrine first. Now, the second thing I would say is this also gives us uh, an opportunity to examine ourselves in light of this text. We need to examine ourselves in light of this text, and I mean this in a couple of different ways. Uh, the first one would be, in the spirit of 2 Corinthians 13, 5, to examine ourselves and see if we are in the faith. Because we don't want to make any assumptions here. And like I said, I have talked to so many people throughout my ministry that they have head knowledge of Jesus, but they don't have heart knowledge of Jesus. They have Bible factoids. They might be able to tell the stories better than I could tell them. But they haven't ever come to the place where they face their own sin, realize that they are powerless to do anything about it, that only Jesus can save them, and put their faith and trust in Christ. And if you hear this today and you say, you know what? I need to do that. I need to get on the proverbial Jesus airplane, so to speak. Then, friends, let's make that turn today. Let today be the day of salvation. And in just a bit, when the rest of us take communion, you hold off, but you put your faith and trust in Christ, and let's begin this journey together. Now, for all that have already made that turn, I think we can take a step back and say, okay, God doesn't just want to inform my head with a passage like this. He wants to shape and change and enliven my heart. And so we can begin to ask some questions like this in a gospel light. So what good works might God be calling me toward this week in response to what I've heard? And we talk about these things regularly, but maybe today the Spirit might be shining a spotlight on some particular area that you've just been ignoring. Maybe there's some pattern of sin that has started to develop and you've just said, ah, it's not that big a deal. And the Lord is kindly saying to you today, it is a big deal. I want to help you with this. I don't want you to be enslaved to this. I want you to, to live out your faith like Abraham, like Rahab, like so many around us. Well, we need to be listening to that still small voice of the Spirit and be ready to respond to God, whatever it is that he's saying here. In other ways, maybe he's calling us to take another step uh, in regard to the church, maybe to join, to, to, to give, to give more consistently, maybe to serve in one of our ministries. Maybe he's calling you to step out and finally engage that neighbor now that the weather, we hope, is starting to turn a corner. People that have been hiding in their homes for months, you're beginning to see them come back out. The garage no longer shuts the fortress, and there will be people in their yards. And you'll be able to talk to them and love on them and talk to them about Jesus. Find out what kind of faith they have. Is it just this belief or is it the real thing? But maybe for others of us, maybe it's to be more intentional in our parenting. Maybe it's to, be, uh, to, to settle some issues at work that need attention. There are many, many, many good works that could flow from hearing this kind of passage. One other example, though there could be many more. Maybe it is to get some healing for a particular issue or set of issues so that you can bear more fruit in the next 3 to 6 to 12 months. We've been talking about that. The COVID season was brutal on so many of us. And many other problems and patterns have developed both in marriages and uh, in, in, in individuals' lives, all kinds of things. 
And we just want to let you know, as your pastors, we want to help you any way that we can. We want to get you connected to helpers beyond the church any way that we can. Because we want you to live in the type of life that this passage is talking about. And we don't want there to be any major obstacles that are keeping you from that. So that being said, we need to examine ourselves in light of this passage. And then finally, we need to also examine the greatness of the Lord Jesus in light of this passage. Examine the greatness of the Lord Jesus in light of this passage. And I mean, this kind of passage, I mean, this really does. This is a little bit of a, of a brain ache today, trying to understand all of this. But at the end of the day, Jesus is all over the place here. Let's just think about just a few of the surface observations that we make here. The fact that we even know that there is true faith to be had and true works to be done that is because of the grace of Jesus. God in his infinite grace or in his infinite power, he was not under any obligation to come and to tell us the truth. But in his infinite mercy and love, he did. And he didn't just come and say, "Hey, there, there's a problem over here. It's called sin and you need to be saved from it." He sent his only son to live the perfect life that we couldn't live, to die the substitute's death that we deserved, and gloriously rise again. So we see the grace of God in even being made aware of these truths and also in seeing the need to be saved in the first place. Now, when we think about that way of salvation, clearly that points us to Jesus. Because even though the good works that we do they are the emphasis in this passage. Every single good work that we do is because of the best work that Jesus did for us. Apart from the Lord Jesus, what does the Bible say that our righteousness is? It's filthy rags. And that's kind of a horrifying image, actually, because what that, uh, that, that Hebrew word means there is it's actually dirty minstrel cloths. If we go out and try to do good works on our own, apart from the grace and the power of Christ, that's what God would look at them like. But because of the grace and mercy of Jesus, our good works come in through that doorway, and they are pleasing to God because of what Jesus has done, not because of what we have done. Now, you think beyond this, the, the faith that we have, what is that? That is a gift of of God made possible through the sacrifice of Jesus. What does the Bible say? The Bible says that no one comes to God except the Spirit draw him. And he does that through the full and finished work of Jesus. And even in some of these other examples here in the passage, when you think about Abraham offering his son as a sacrifice, how can you look at that and not see a necessary pointer to God the Father offering his sacrifice of Jesus, his son, for us. So friends, everywhere we turn, the grace and the glory of God is on display in this passage. And so what I want to remind us of this morning is that grace and glory of God. He has made it known to us. And he has saved us in part so that we might share it with the nations. And so what I want to do 
to end today is I want to spend a little bit of time praying and thanking God for showing His grace to us and then praying for the help that we need this week. So let's bow our heads and let's do that together today. Oh Lord, we are thankful for your truth this morning. Lord, we are thankful that you didn't simply save us to sit, but you saved us to serve. You didn't just save us to someday go to heaven, but you also saved us to go to the nations with the gospel, to go across the street with the gospel, to go across the kitchen with the gospel. And so, Lord, we, we are thankful this morning. We feel great gratitude this morning. That you love us enough to tell us the truth, that you love us enough to raise up Paul and James and all the other writers and inspired them by your Spirit to give us your word. And Lord, we want to hear it this morning. We want to be both informed and we want to be transformed. And Lord, we want to take this time to pray that as the Holy Spirit shines the spotlight on areas of our life that need further transformation, that need more work, Lord, that in the midst of that conviction, there would also be great comfort. That we don't have to work to earn your favor. That we do good works because we have your favor. Lord, I pray that it would rest upon us that we don't have to work to be saved. That we work because we're saved. And Lord, I pray that we would rest in the great work of Jesus Christ in the full and finished work of Jesus. And Lord, for those who are discouraged this morning, we pray that they would be encouraged in Christ. For those that are struggling this morning, that they would come to you with open hands and let you help. And Lord, we pray that you would continue to lead and guide our church and that you would help us to live into the reality that this passage points us toward. And we pray all this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.